True North continues to knock it out of the park. We have doubled in size over the past year. We now reach over 10 million Canadians each and every month across our platforms. Our stories are being picked up by our competitors in the legacy media. We're having a real influence on politics and public policy in this country, and we're helping to shape the political culture in Canada. Today, I'm very excited to share some big news with our audience. I'm Candace Malcolm, and this is The Candace Malcolm Show. everyone, thank you so much for tuning in. So today I am delighted to announce that True North has hired one of the brightest journalists in the country, a rising star in conservative political circles. I'm proud to announce that Rupa Subramania will be joining True North as a columnist and a podcast host. And Rupa joins me on the show today. So Rupa, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Candice. I'm truly excited to be uh, part of the True North uh, Center team, and uh, I'm really excited about my show, and I have lots of good things coming up, uh, lots of great topics and ideas and guests, and I'm really looking forward to tackling the important issues of the day that matter to us as Canadians, and uh, and hopefully issues that uh, that none of the no, nobody in the mainstream media wants to touch, and you know, or they give short shrift to these ideas, and I hope to take them on head on and have meaningful discussions and uh, with my with my guests, and I'm so I'm really really excited about this. Well, we feel very lucky to have you, and it's been great to connect with you over the past few months. Uh, for people who aren't. Uh, completely familiar with you. Uh, Rupa is also a columnist over at the National Post. She's written for the Wall Street Journal, Foreign Policy Magazine. She's a distinguished fellow with the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada. Rupa, you live in Ottawa, and I think a lot of Canadians came to know you and came to uh, see your journalism firsthand during the trucker convoy because you were doing something that your colleagues in the media failed to do, which was just go out and talk to the truckers and get to know them and try to understand what was motivating them and what they were there for and what, what it was all about. And it seemed really like basic, basic journalism, but no one else was willing to do it. Instead, they were all too happy to just sort of parrot Justin Trudeau's uh, you know, dismissals of the truckers and, and his criticisms of them. Um, you know, it's, some of the most interesting things that we heard was that, oh, these truckers are a bunch of racist white supremacists. Um, and here you are as an Indian woman, and you said that you felt safe and comfortable and that people were nice and kind and welcoming. You didn't see any of those kind of attitudes that the media were trying to tell us about the truckers. So you really did outstanding, uh, outstanding work. Um, I'm wondering if you could just sort of tell us about why you approached the trucker convoy so differently than everybody else in the media or so many other people in the media in Ottawa. Well, several different things. So I approached it as a resident of the city, as someone who's, who was just very curious about what was happening in my neighborhood. And I had heard about um, the convoy before it even arrived. I'd heard ab ab about, you know, I'd read about some of the key players and that, and what Justin Trudeau said about uh, the unvaccinated and the protesters. So I was aware of all of this, the, the, the narrative that was already in place at, before the protesters even showed up. And I was just really intellectually curious to see what was happening in Ottawa. So I walked around and I uh, spent about eight or nine hours that day in, in the bitter, uh, bitter cold. And, uh, um, and I saw something extraordinary. I um, saw people, um, you know, it was, it was uh, people of different backgrounds 
backgrounds. It was like Canada Day in the winter. It felt like a winter carnival. Um, I um, and I, you know, I saw some diversity uh, in the crowds as well. Um, and it was just a very, very, um, uh, you know, it was a joy. It was it was joyous. Uh, this it was it, it was almost cathartic for a lot of people to be there. People, who, you know, we've been under we'd been under a lockdown for two years, under restrictions for two years, where you know many of us couldn't even see our loved ones, and suddenly there was this uh, explosion of emotions uh, right here in the nation's capital, and that too in in some very very cold conditions, and that to me indicated that uh, the you know people were there because they were really committed to the cause. They were really dedicated to it and they really believed in it and they were willing to spend hours on end to make their voices heard. Um, and uh, by by the end of that, I you know I, I I came home and I you know I and I and I tweeted saying you know I think the elites in this country, the political establishment, the media establishment have really misjudged what is happening here. This is much bigger than anything anyone expected. It was bigger than anything I had expected. So for me, it was an eye-opening experience. And uh, and also what was interesting was that um, uh, that first weekend, I I got a lot of messages from some some of my uh, journalists friends who work for very well-known publications, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times. And they were, they, they were uh, trying to understand what was happening in Ottawa. They asked me, why is there no actual on-the-ground reportage of what is happening in Ottawa? It seems pretty big, but all we keep hearing is that there are a bunch of white supremacists and they're being caricatured. Where are the stories? Where's the actual on-the-ground reportage? And um, and I was, you know, really struck by that question because everything that we had uh, that was being reported on, if you can even call it that, was just someone's opinion, you know, or just uh, uh, just just talking from uh, just directly from the uh, Justin Trudeau's talking points. And but yet there were all of these people with very interesting stories that come, uh, they, they, they driven long hours to get to the city. Um, they were there in the cold. They were, uh, and keep in mind that um, Ottawa was still under a semi lockdown at that point. And by the end of the first weekend, the Rideau Center closed. There were no washroom facilities anywhere. Uh, you know, people literally were just out there all day. Uh, you couldn't eat anywhere. You couldn't grab, uh, you know, you, the only two things that were open were the McDonald's and the Tim Hortons. So there was really nothing you could do except be there to make your voice heard. And, um, and so, you know, it just kept you know, getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I felt that the best way to tackle, so I started tweeting, the best way to tackle this corrosive narrative, and I really thought it was a very corrosive narrative that was that was that was uh, being pushed by, uh, you know, some some important journalists and large sections of the media, and of course the po the political establishment as well, is, is that I thought I would tackle it in a humorous way. I'd be, you know, that I wanted to be sarcastic about it because there was no other way of taking it on. Um, you know, I couldn't be serious about it. I just had to be. I had to. I had to you know, mock the situation. And that's exactly what I did. So here I am, a person of color, I'm walking around, you know, and I'm walking in the badlands of Ottawa. That's, that's how I um, described Ottawa to my, to my, uh, you know, while tweeting, and that here I was being mobbed by people wanting to give me a hug, and they were handing out food, and I felt very threatened. And, uh, and I was just being, you know, ironic about the whole situation. 
And, uh, and at first, I think people were a little confused because sarcasm doesn't always translate well on, on social media. Uh, but then people started to get an idea of where I was coming from. You know, I said, wow, you know, this is, you know, I'm, I'm really um, stunned by this. But, you know, in a, in a first, people from Montreal are coming to Ottawa to party. And that's exactly what was happening. Um, uh, Ottawa became um, this destination to, to party. But at the same time, you, 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 you know, you were also protesting. You were also exercising your right to civil disobedience and uh, um, and and so all of those things were happening so I my tweets got a lot of traction I think it resonated with a lot of people because you know I was I was saying something different something that was different it felt like I was in an alternate reality from from what was being reported on by large sections of the media I uh, um, you know what I was experiencing there was completely at odds with at, at odds with what was being reported and and that was the reaction of many of the protesters themselves you know they you know, they, they tune into um, your, you know, whatever it was, the CBC, the CTV, uh, CTV, and, uh, and, and they would, they would, they would find that the reporting of it was uh, at complete odds with what they'd experienced, especially this, this was especially a strong feeling among people of color that I had interviewed, you know, they couldn't believe that they were um, somehow, you know, that, that they were being, uh, that it was, that, that they were being told that they were part of some white supremacist movement when, when, you know, they, experience something totally different. Um, so I felt that I felt at that point, and I've been, I, you know, I've tracked media propaganda for a very long time in various countries, I knew exactly what was going on here. And um, I knew I knew that this, you know, what was happening here was rather insidious. And I wanted to, um, you know, uh, uh, Put a put a correction to it, and uh, and that's exactly, I think, what I did by by tweeting about it, and then I was asked to write about it, and uh, and I'm glad I did because I think that was an important contribution to what was being said out there, and uh, um, and and it challenged that 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 uh, that narrative. Uh, I think in a substantial way, and I was happy to play my 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 role in that. Well, good for you, and absolutely that that piece that you wrote for Barry Weiss and her Substack. Uh, was absolutely must read, uh, essential reading for anyone who wanted to really understand the trucker convoy. And I've said this on the show before, but the the photographs that accompanied your piece were just absolutely stunning and beautiful. And I think that the whole thing was incredibly well done. Uh, well, Rupa, I I, I wonder because uh, to me the I, I'm similar. I've been monitoring the uh, Canadian media. Uh, for a very long time, and I've had criticisms about them for a very long time. Seems to me that every time there's a new news story or a new narrative that comes up, they sort of ratchet it up more and more. And the trucker convoy was like peak Laurentian elite biased media. Like they had no interest in telling the story. They only had an interest in pushing the narrative that they that they previously decided on. And 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 to so many people, to your point. That, that was a turning point for them because they saw on social media or with their own eyes in Ottawa what was happening. And then you juxtapose that with the very, very inflammatory things the prime minister was saying, which was being backed up by a very sorry, uh, loyal servitude press. And, and, and it was really quite something. I, I, I want to ask you, though, you know, you, you, you sort of work, you sort of have a foot in both um, uh, in both ponds with independent media now and uh, legacy media and you're a freelance journalist and you've written for all of these incredibly prestigious publications. Um, so what, what, what are your thoughts on the current 
uh, legacy media? And what do you think about the sort of new upstart um, environment where there's a whole bunch of new sort of either independent people doing subsects like Barry Weiss or in, uh, independent media organizations that, that stay removed from government uh, like True North? I think it's a very exciting time to be an independent voice uh, because I think the public is starting to see um, the, the uh, you know, st they're starting to see what, what's happening. Uh, and I have these conversations with a range of different people um, um, who were, uh, you know, they, they wouldn't, um, they would only believe what was said on the CBC or, 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 or on a mainstream uh, outlet. And that's starting to change. They're starting to see what is going Going on here because some of some some of what is being said is at complete odds with what they themselves are experiencing, just like with the protesters at the Freedom Convoy, and even if you were not here protesting, um, a lot of people saw through the propaganda and and started questioning it. Um, and I'm I'm seeing so I, I think this is a very exciting time for independent voices to make their mark. Um, um, and um, and as far as the legacy media is concerned, as far as the established media is concerned, I think um, I think they're going to have to uh, start taking note. Uh, you know, my piece for Barry Wise probably resonated more than anything that was written in uh, in the Canadian media. In Canadian media, I I I think it was um, um, there's a space for that for that for that kind of reportage. There's clearly a market for that kind of reportage. Uh, uh, there's a market for alternate opinions. I think, um, and like I mentioned, the public is just very uh, starting to see through this and uh, and are craving for something that is different. Um, and uh, and I think uh, and I think the mainstream media justifiably feels very threatened by what is happening in the independent media space. Uh, and, and just as well, you know, because I think competition is good. Uh, I think uh, plurality of uh, different voices is better than just one uh, hegemonic um, uh, narrative that is in place, thanks to, um, you know, state funded uh, media organizations. I think it's very important um, what uh, independent media is doing. And I'm so grateful for uh, the True North Center uh, and um, media outlets um, like the True North Center for what they're doing, because if not for them, uh, you, you, you'd just be fed on this constant, you, uh, you know, it's constant propaganda. And uh, it's, it's not entirely 100% propaganda. Of course, there's some genuine bona fide reporting from the mainstream media establishment. It's just that when it, I've, I've noticed that when it comes to polarizing issues, whether it is reporting on the COVID-19 pandemic or is, or it's it's the protests. Um, there seems to be an agenda at play, and uh, and it's a clear agenda uh, at work that wants to project a certain kind of narrative, and uh, and that is where it gets very problematic for me. Um, I, and the media is a large space. Let me put. Uh, let, let me make that very clear. I write for the National Post. They're incredibly supportive uh, of my opinions. They're um, you know I, I you know I have a great platform with them, and so it's not. So you know when I when I say the media you know it, we we have to be very careful because there are there are players in the in the mainstream media establishment like the national post for example that do um good work and i'm not just saying that because i write for them but i genuinely feel that they're the only ones who uh give me a voice uh give me a platform and uh, and that's important to recognize as well uh but like I said, competition is good. Uh, we really need to have a contestation of ideas. Um, and this is where the independent media outlets play um, uh, a, a very important role. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the National Post hosts some of the most fantastic thinkers in Canada, people like yourself, Rex Murphy, Barbara Kay, Conrad Black. Uh, but then they're also part of the Post Media chain, which often picks up uh, Canadian press news stories where you get the sort of same regurgitated uh, insider sort of perspective, which which is, is you know, it's unfortunate. There's obviously bigger issues at, vol- at play uh, with the legacy media. Rufa, one of the things I've noticed recently is that some of the better sort of reporting and opinion pieces on Canada and specifically on Justin Trudeau come from abroad. Um, you know, we had during the trucker convoy, the New York Times uh, reporting on things that that several times legacy media journalists, people like Rosemary Barton at the CBC, uh, would, were openly criticizing and telling the New York Times to take this down because it's, it's wrong. Well, it wasn't wrong. It just didn't fit with the Trudeau narrative. Uh, you know, the idea that they were breaking into vehicles and arresting people at gunpoint. That was sort of like an inconvenient story that that um, the Canadian media didn't want. Uh, w- one of the other things I've noticed is a sort of disconnect between so in Canada, if, if you say that Justin Trudeau is acting like a dictator or that Canada is going do, to, down a tyrannical or authoritarian path, uh, the media sort of like cr- clutch their pearls and say, like, that's reckless and, and uh, you know, hyperbolic. How dare you? Uh, m- more and more, we're hearing that opinion um, being taken from people uh, around the world, outside observers, uh, people who are critical of, of Trudeau. And uh, I saw that you shared a, a piece by Rav Arora, who's a great young writer from Vancouver. He wrote a piece in the New York Post um, titled, Once a Liberal Democracy, Canada is Now an Authoritarian State. So it's a great piece. I encourage reader, uh, viewers to go out and read it. Uh, Rav argues that Canadian government has taken away, has taken its power to extreme levels. He tells a story about how he almost wasn't allowed back into Canada, um, despite um, you know being a Canadian. And um, he, he also makes a point saying that, you know, his family left India when he was a child and he feels that, you know, Canada is not necessarily more free than India. Um, I'm wondering uh, if, you, if you can give us your, your thoughts on, on Rav's piece and, and sort of generally that direction that not, not only is Canada heading towards this direction, but you don't see these kind of uh, opinion pieces much in Canada. Increasingly, you are seeing them around the world, though. Uh, exactly. I uh, very much enjoyed Rav's piece and I shared it, um, um, you know, I shared a very uh, important quote from the tweet where he says that, you know, the, the country that my parents left behind, India, um, you know, seems a lot less authoritarian than Canada at this point because he's unvaccinated and he can't get on a plane and uh, and he's essentially a prisoner in his own country. I think that's, um, I, you know, I'm very um, uh, sympathetic to that point of view. Um, I, 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 you know, I know a lot of unvaccinated people and they're really struggling. It's, um, they, and Canada is an outlier in this regard. Um, uh, India, a country that I'm also very familiar with, having spent a lot of time there, has no vaccine mandates uh, in place. In fact, the Supreme Court of India said that vaccine mandates um, were uh, were unconstitutional. And uh, in, in a recent ruling, um, and uh, that, um, you know, you can't, uh, and, 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 and uh, emphasized on the the importance of bodily autonomy. Uh, it was an extraordinary ruling, and um, and it makes made me question why, uh, you know, what is happening with our courts here? You know, why aren't we seeing this kind of, um, uh, you know, why aren't we seeing this sort of thing happening here? Uh, and 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 so, a lot of people like Rav, you know, feel that the country that 
they grew up in. And I, I will say this as someone who spent um, 25 years, uh, you know, I came here as a teenager and I've been, you know, and I've been here for, uh, for, a, for a long time. And I can tell you that I don't recognize this country anymore. I don't, I don't, I don't um, uh, recognize what, it, you know, I don't understand what is happening here. I don't know why Canada is an outlier here. Of course, there are problems with India. I wouldn't say that, uh, you know, India is necessarily freer than Canada. I, I think that would be a little bit of an exaggeration if one were to say that, but one can certainly point to the fact that um, Canada is heading in the wrong direction. It is an outlier in the advanced West. It is out, it's an outlier among major countries in insisting on um, vaccine mandates, on the two-dose uh, vaccine mandate, which makes absolutely no sense. You have um, uh, research uh, upon research coming up from various credible uh, health agencies from across the world, whether it's the CDC, whether it's the UK, or it's the UK Health Authority uh, or UK Health Agency, that show that the two-dose vaccine uh, regimen is actually not very effective at this point, where if you've done two doses, um, you're, you're, you're really, the vaccine effectiveness has essentially gone down to zero. So, but but the diff, but the thing is, I can get on a plane uh, and I can uh, apply for a federal government job, uh, but the unvaccinated can't, and that's the, the and that's what's um, very cruel about the situation. Um, and 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 also we've we've completely ignored the fact that um, a lot of unvaccinated people probably have um, a great deal of natural immunity at this point. At this point, everyone's more or less been infected. And so you have uh, immunity from vaccination and you also have immunity from having recovered from COVID-19. Um, yet, yet the government insists on these vaccine mandates, which absolutely make no sense. So I, I appreciate where he's coming from, where Rav Aurora is coming from, and um, I sympathize with it. And it is an absolutely frustrating situation to be in. Um, and, um, and, um, you know, I, uh, I, and he faced a lot of pushback. Um, on the piece. Um, in fact, I think a lot of people thought that I was writing the piece. Um, uh, which your, was... your, your tweet sort of went viral, if it went, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and because because you're from yeah. India too, so, it kind of seemed like maybe you had yeah. written it, but, but yeah. And the reactions were, you know, borderline xenophobic, outright you know, racist in, in a sense. Uh, they they thought that I'd written the piece or they thought that he had written or he, or they correctly assumed he wrote the piece and they told us to go back to India if we felt uh, that things were so bad here. Uh, why are you here? Go back to India. Um, Rav's response was, well, I'd like to, but I can't get on a plane. Um, and, uh, I think that was his response. And uh, and honestly, that that kind of response is extremely xenophobic and problematic. And it comes from um, the so-called liberal left, you know, and uh, uh, because they're they're supposed to be better than this, but you know it doesn't take much to uh, for for these kinds of sentiments to uh, to 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 come out. As uh, anytime I criticize Canada, I'm told that I you know I should just go back. Well, why should I? I chose this country. You know, I chose to be here, and I. Uh, choose to remain here and I will uh, fight for what is right. And, uh, and, and that's really the best response you can give to such people. But it was quite extraordinary, the pushback, because I think, I think um, Rav uh, touched a nerve 
um, um, and in a way that my piece, my piece, piece did something similar. It touched a nerve, um, um, and I and I and I think and I, I I will quote this, and I'm paraphrasing here. But the New York Times correspondent who um, covered the protests uh, for the New York Times uh, was, I think, in interviewed by Canada Land shortly after, and uh, and her parting shot was that you know I don't think Canadians are used to seeing themselves in this manner. And I think that's 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 what's going on here. That that explains the um, the pushback that uh, at least the pushback that she was getting. And I think that really does sum up the pushback. Um, describes the pushback that Rav and I uh, have been getting. Right. Well, I mean, what happened to the whole a Canadian is a Canadian is Canadian. In Rav's case, he moved to Canada when he was four years old. So it's not like he, you know, it's not like he grew up in India and, and, and has a place to go back there. It's like his family made this choice. And interestingly for him, you know, he's a, he's a young guy. I think he's in his early 20s. And the reason that he didn't get vaccinated is because he got COVID and he had natural immunity. So you're right. He probably has stronger immunity and a better chance of being okay than, than, than most other people. Yeah. And that is the science. That is the science. Right. There yeah, is exactly. actual science there. And we are completely ignoring it. And uh, that is just very perplexing. Like if I, I can go to Germany tomorrow and I can show uh, proof of, uh, um, uh, I can either show proof of vaccination or proof of a negative COVID test or proof of recovery. A lot of European countries accept proof of recovery. Uh, what makes us so special? Why are we so different here? Uh, it's not just Canada, but it's also the US. Um, and, you know, then it leads to all of these questions, you know, then it leads us into this rabbit hole of uh, conspiracy theories, you know, what is going on here is it the pharmaceutical companies, we bought all of these vaccines, maybe they're just, they just want to push this on us because they bought all of these vaccines. I'd rather not go there, you know, I'd rather like take on the policy for what it is and criticize it. But, um, but it is quite extraordinary that we uh, are an outlier uh, in, in much of the world. And, uh, and we're just, it's, it's uh, needlessly punishing uh, five or 6 million Canadians for uh, making a medical decision. Well, absolutely. And, and, and the bizarre decision this week for the federal government, the Liberal Party and the NDP to extend these travel restrictions sort of indefinitely. It's like, you know, we can't we can't even at this point admit that most of these measures are no longer necessary. Some of them were never necessary in the first place. It's like they're they're completely sort of stuck to that. I, I want to ask you this, Rupa, you recently wrote on some of the various polls about Canadians particularly new Canadians and new immigrants, how they're losing confidence in Canada in the direction. And I think this is what you're talking about, touched a nerve with a lot of liberals, is that, uh, well, the Leger poll commissioned by the Institute for Canadian Citizenship found that 30% of new Canadians aged 18 to 34 said they were more likely to move to another country within the next two years. You know, Canada is a country that sort of prides itself on uh, being very welcoming to immigrants. Uh, all the political parties are very pro-immigration, and Canada is sort of held up as this country where pluralism works and immigration has been successful. Um, and yet, you know, under this direction, of all people, Justin Trudeau, the person who sort of champions um, diversity as our strength, he says it all the time. Um, and yet, under his leadership, especially young immigrants, which are the ones that really Canada wants to recruit because they're the ones that help our economy and help us grow and help balance out the aging population and the demographic crunch and all that kind of stuff. Increasingly, they don't want to come to Canada. They want to live here. I think this creates a huge problem uh, for Trudeau. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your research and your reporting on this area? 
Well, um, so I think um, if I if I remember correctly, uh, that poll uh, talked about how a lot of people were losing trust in the government. Uh, th there was an increasing loss of trust in the way government works, and that there was a lack of democratic accountability. Um, uh, um, that that. That people were gen generally feeling, um, and that is very um, interesting uh, because um, you know normally new immigrants um, are not necessarily looking at these issues. Um, I would say they're 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 focused on the bread and butter issues. They're looking at the to, you know they're looking at employment options. They want to send their kids to school. Um, they they want to uh, earn a living. Uh, so the fact that they're focused on these other issues is quite extraordinary. Um, and I think it is a general sense of malaise that everybody's been feeling, especially over the last couple of years. Um, and, uh, and, and uh, new immigrants are not um, um, immune from that. Uh, in fact, I would say that new immigrants have also um, uh, probably uh, been at the receiving end of some of these um, harsh restrictions, uh, whether it's the mandates. I, I, I've met a few uh, new immigrants who uh, don't want to be vaccinated. Uh, and and they have, they you know so it affects them directly, um, and and just this like as I said, there's a general sense of malaise. You know where are we going here? You know, uh, and and there's a lot of other stuff going on here as well. New immigrants tend to be generally very conservative. I think new immigrants probably, and I can't speak for all new immigrants, but generally conservative new immigrants are not necessarily interested in wokeism. This is not something that they identify with. Um, if you tell um, a conservative new immigrant uh, that uh, a woman is not really a woman or that uh, there is no such thing as a woman, uh, they're going to be shocked at these kinds of views. And, uh, and, I, I, and, and so there's a cultural element to this, I conjecture. Um, I, I don't have um, data to back this up, but I do think that there's a strong cultural component to the way uh, new immigrants feel about being in Canada, because Canada, in a sense, has completely, um, you know, uh, bought into this woke narrative more than any other country, maybe uh, except for the United States. Um, but uh, certainly, you know, European countries, you know, there's a great deal of, um, you know, th there's a contestation of these of these of these narratives, uh, much more than uh, what we're seeing here. And uh, so there's a strong cultural component, um, economic, a component, sure. Uh, new immigrants are always struggling to find jobs. Um, uh, the the fact that they come here uh, highly skilled and can't uh, translate those skills into uh, meaningful employment here that continues to be an issue. I know the Ford government is working on changing that, uh, but you know there's still a lot of PhDs and doctors driving taxis. Um, so there is still an economic component. It still it's it still matters, uh, but I think increasingly there is also a cultural component to these um, to these uh, to these uh, to, uh, to this general feeling of uh, malaise and that you know they're not happy being here. Absolutely. Well, another news story this week is that the Trudeau government is decriminalizing drugs in British Columbia. I know that's one issue that uh, for, for my uh, my husband's family is from Iran, and that's something that they just really can't wrap their head around uh, just from like, a human dignity perspective. Why is Canada allowing people to use heroin and these other hard drugs? Uh, there's, such, there's such a huge disconnect. Um, and and it, it is really interesting to see uh, Trudeau I, I, I think he's really jumping the shark with so many of these issues where he's just so incredibly 
out of touch with the people he purports to to stand for. Well, Rupa, I, I can't I can't tell you how excited we are to have you as part of the team. It's such an honor, and I'm really looking forward to your uh, your, your contributions with us. Uh, t- tell us a little bit about your podcast, uh, what viewers can expect, and what kind of issues you're going to be diving into. Well, um, no, it's an honor, Candice, and I'm so thrilled that I'm doing this for the True North Center, and I'm really excited about what what, what is going to come in the coming weeks and months. Um, and uh, so, first of all, I'm going to be, um, it's going to be uh, about 20 minutes or so, and we'll uh, have, a, um, uh, you know, I'll, I'll have a guest on, uh, and I'll obviously pick the topics. And these are topics and ideas that I care about. And so it, it, it's, it'll be similar to the kinds of things that I uh, write about. Uh, but the difference being that we'll, we'll, we'll have more in-depth uh, conversations uh, and, and, and also talk about things that I couldn't go into my column. Um, so it'll be everything from all of the issues that we care about and the issues that don't necessarily make it into mainstream media conversations. I think that is very important for me. I do want to pay, you know, give some attention to these, to these, uh, to these issues, and um, and 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 that's basically where where I'm coming from. And hopefully, um, it'll stimulate um, an interesting uh, conversation around these topics uh, as we go on. Uh, and I, my uh, viewers, my listeners don't necessarily have to agree with me. Uh, I think it's it, it would be good uh, if, if, if they actually disagreed with me. I think it would be it would spark a discussion around these things, uh, around these ideas. But um, so I, you know, I, I, I want them to be able to uh, get something out of these uh, discussions. I want it to be intellectual. I want it to be stimulating. Some of the topics may be provocative, but I'm 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 not shy about being provocative. So um, so I think. I think uh, it, 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 it hopes to be very promising and I'm really looking forward to it. Well, that's great. Rupa, I can't wait. Your, your first uh, episode is going to air next week. So everyone uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, thank you so much uh, for joining the show and, and thank you for joining us and welcome aboard to True North. Thank you so much, Candice. It's a pleasure. Okay, that's Rupa Subramanya now with True North. I'm Candice Malcolm and this is The Candice Malcolm Show. Mm-hmm.